critique is only ever rooted in love. Um, if you don't care about something, you won't bother to critique it. You'll be apathetic towards it. That's what I was really fighting for and, and, and questioning and frustrated around is that I know that we can do better. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, the place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Thanks so much for listening. This is our 100th episode. It's really hard to believe, but thank you so much for making this show what it is just by listening and tuning in each week. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with the subject. And as you know, we're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges, but not barriers. Our guest today is Derek Webb. Derek is a singer-songwriter from Nashville, Tennessee. He's the brains behind Noise Trade, an independent music platform, Resolvable, a consulting and coaching firm, and the podcast host of The Airing of Grief. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, man. It's great to be with you. I'm so excited we got to connect, dude. Thank you so much for saying yes. Oh, me too. Yeah. So, Derek, before we dive into our conversation, how did you get introduced to church, to faith, with some of your spiritual background? Yeah, well, I grew up in South, and and that's one of those answers that I could either stop right there or I could say a bit more, so I'll say a bit more. But um, I grew up in the South. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. And so for people who didn't grow up in the American South, it, it's, um, you know, the the not to be crude about it, but church is definitely big business. It's definitely um, per- pervasive um, in in almost all of life. It's everywhere. It's mixed up in everything. And on the whole, that's not a bad thing. And because um, it was actually a great experience for me. I, I enjoyed growing up um, and being mixed up in the church. Um, and so my parents... Um, we're not especially religious, but they understood the importance, I think, of spirituality. And actually, no, that 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 sounded wrong coming out of my mouth. It, I don't think spirituality was on the radar. I think that they understood the importance of religion. They understood the importance of a moral framework, um, especially for kids, as a way to kind of regulate behavior and things like that. And um, and just, it's kind of like, um, you know, community in a box, like you kind of get all the stuff. It kind of does, um, a lot of the organizing and congregating and for you, and you just kind of get to show up. And then there's just like a whole bunch of people there. They just get to be your community and that's, and it's easier than doing it organically or the old fashioned way. So I totally understand how and why it happens and why, how and why it happened in my family and in probably every family, you know, growing up in Memphis at that time and probably still. Um, and so grew up with it that way, grew up obviously extremely aware. It was, it was invisible. Um, it was so, um, you know, inevitable in our lives and in our town and, um, and, but never, ne- you know, didn't, and I went through confirmation. Um, I was, it, we were Methodist. And so I went through, I was about 13 years old, um, went through a, a confirmation process, um, which kind of is what you do when you're a kid. And, and that's kind of the point at which you become an official member of the church. And, 
um, and you you have to learn, uh, you know, a, a good deal of stuff, and they give you a Bible and all that sort of thing. So went through all that, but I wouldn't have thought that didn't feel to me like any kind of a conversion uh, process or moment. Um, it was really more like high school, um, which was in Texas by the time I was in high school, um, which is not the deep South, but it's still the South and arguably. And, um, so it's still churches and religion is still extremely common in culture down there and, um, wound up mixed up in an organization called young life, which is a kind of a parachurch organization, which for people who don't know that code, it's basically just not affiliated with a particular church denomination. They're just a, an outside organization that does, um, even evangelism to high school kids. Um, and that was a pretty good experience. Um, it, it was all, they were all good experiences, honestly. I, I'm not one of, I don't have one of those stories where there was a lot of, um, really awful experiences in, in, uh, in church. I, it was, it was nice. It was a nice, great way to grow up there. It, like I said, it was kind of built in friends, um, built in community, things like that. And so, um, and then wound up kind of the act three of it was, um, was when, um, I was just out of high school, wound up in a, in a, joining a band, um, that got kind of, we weren't really thinking about our spirituality. We were not thinking about branding ourselves with our spirituality, but we wound up, um, this was the early nineties. We wound up um, signed to a record label to Warner brothers, a, a imprint under Warner brothers here in Nashville. Um, they signed us and put us with their kind of Christian music division because they intuited about us that, you know, most of us in the band were Christians and, and, um, it's a record label's job to figure out how to market and sell art. And so they're, they're usually looking for indicators like that. And they, they found those on us. And so that's, the, the road they took us down and we did really well there. And so we got really, I mean, we just mostly played colleges and tried to make music that was relevant to what we were kind of feeling and going through. And we didn't really, really, I don't think consider it especially Christian, um, which is a category that I could say a lot about, but I won't right now um, in terms of whether or not I think that's a real thing, uh, art that is Christian, but, um, but it didn't seem to matter to us at the time. We were just trying to make cool music and, um, but once you have a lot of success in a particular genre, you're kind of, then, then you, you get tagged and stuck with that. And so even through my solo career that I'm still in to this day, I was 10 years in that band and I've been a solo artist ever since, ever since maybe the, the early two thousands. Um, you know, it's a hard category to shake. Um, and w- once you're a professional Christian, it's hard. That's a hard, that's kind of a job you don't retire from except in the extreme cases, which I think in the, just the handful of few years here recently, uh, I think maybe I have been because my most recent records have been more documents of my coming out of Christianity and no longer identifying that way. And, um, which I don't want to skip to a further question, but you know, that's, uh, so it, it's definitely been an interesting, um, cause I still live in the South. I live in Nashville and, uh, so um, where I think there's some presumed spirituality on people, they, that it's just the presumption, um, unlike other parts of the, the, the country and certainly the world where it's certainly not the presumption that you're evangelical Christian or something. But um, 
so yeah, it's made for an interesting uh, journey. It's still um, high on my list of topics to talk about because, you know, you don't spend 30 something years in a particular um, institution or system of belief and then suddenly stop caring about it and stop talking about it and stop processing it. So um, you'll still hear that in the stuff that I make, but, uh, um, but yeah, that's so, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of how I got here, I think. That's awesome. Now, correct me where I'm wrong. That band you're mentioning, was that Cadman's Call? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all met right out of high school and started touring around Texas playing colleges and then got signed to Warner Brothers a few years later, kind of mid-90s. And, and, um, and I was in that band until about 2001 or two. Now, in that band, there were many songwriters, you being one of them. And for myself, knowing your material and being familiar with your work, you can usually pick out a web tune on those albums. They're usually a bit more provocative. They're to the point. They're, they're often blunt. Was that difficult to write what you were feeling and experiencing within this collective of songwriters? Um, you know what? Like, just looking back on it now, n- no. Um, during, during my years in the band, um, there were really just two of us writing. It was me and then a guy named Aaron Tate. And Aaron was a a great friend of mine from high school in Houston. He's actually still a great friend of mine. Um, and he, the band really formed around his songs and, and that, and the, and the strength of his songwriting is what really got us started. And then, then within the first year or 18 months that the band had really, started working is when I started contributing songs. Um, I was shy about that at the beginning, but then the band would, I'd bring, I'd bring a song or two to the band and they, and they would, we would learn them and we would try them out at, cause we were playing a ton of shows. We, we toured incessantly during the, during the nineties, um, colleges all over the country, but especially in Texas. And, um, and as people would react to them and like them and they seemed to fit into the sets okay, then we would continue to play them. And so it happened really slowly. Um, my only apprehension about writing in those days was that I was having to write songs that I knew were going to be right against Aaron's. And Aaron was such a, a hero, a songwriting hero and mentor of mine because he was a few years older than me. And, but he is just, he's, he was and is just such a tremendous songwriter just a i mean he was writing you know at at that time let alone 20 years whatever later today but at that time he was writing the songs that i hoped to ever aspire to write songs like that and and uh he was writing songs that in my in my opinion at that time were as good as the heroes that i was emulating you know um in terms of songwriters and so I was more nervous just imagining my songs sticking out like really sore thumbs between Aaron Tate songs, which were just so strong and so good. And, um, but it, you know, our kind of trajectory of success back then was so, was such that I don't think I was super aware of it. And I wasn't, it was kind of, um, it happened slowly and it happened kind of organic. Well, it happened slowly and it happened quick. It's like all that stuff. We worked for, a handful of years just worked our asses off and then all of a sudden got signed and then, you know, had a lot of support and then started doing much better all of a sudden and then did really well for a handful of years. And, but, um, but it happened, it's like because of the, the organic process by which I started contributing songs and what a democratic 
process that was. The band was very open um, to my songs and, and, and really it was just a matter of whether or not they worked in the set. And if, if uh, we, you know, we'd play them at some random college campus during the set and if people cheered and liked them and they were like, cool, let's do it again tomorrow night. They were very supportive and very open. They were not protective. They were not territorial. I mean, we all kind of started the band at the same time. So it's not like I was coming into a situation. Um, I felt, you know, I was a founder of that band like anybody else. And um, so it, it felt great. And, and I remember back then feeling very free actually to write whatever I was feeling and that the band would always support me and, and, you know, always really liked the songs that I was contributing. And uh, even though they were very different. And then after a while, it started to make sense in terms of the differences between, and, and we were so grateful to have Aaron's continued songwriting because, so Aaron was not in the band though. He was kind of a non-touring member. He, he, uh, he, he, he just never played in our band. He, he, uh, and it's its own story of kind of how that, cause that's a pe- peculiar situation, but, um, but he, um, continued to write for the band for as long as I did, at least for those 10 years. And, uh, and luckily we had his songs cause he was, he wrote folk songs. That's what we were all doing, but, but he also had such an incredible pop sensibility. And so his were the songs that the, the label put on the radio and so, and those big hits on the radio is what got a lot of people out. It's like what doubled and tripled the size of our concerts and stuff. And so we were so grateful to have, you know, him. And then I would kind of write the deep cuts. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, and, you know, we were emulating bands like Indigo Girls and, and um, they were a huge influence on us. And, and, you know, there's a band that has two very distinctly different singers, very distinctly different um women writing from two different perspectives and with very different voices, both literally and as songwriters. And, and you can tell which songs are Emily's and which songs are Amy's um, just because of the energy um, and the way the lyrics are put together. And, um, and, and, and their records would kind of go very back and forth. And so that's eventually where we settled was emulating that kind of model and which seemed to work for us. And, but um, those were great years, um, you know, as a young writer, for sure. So then you leave Cademan's, you're pursuing your solo material, you're still provocative, at least to the classic CCM. Songs like Wedding Dress, Better Than Wine, She Must and Shall Go Free, Mockingbird. Were songs and albums reflections of your processing out your faith and your spirituality? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, what's interesting is I, I don't really feel like there, there was anything um, especially provocative about what I was writing during the Cademan's years. Um, it might have, it could have been, I wouldn't have known this at the time, but it, it could have been provocative in comparison to what else was coming out on the other albums on our same record label, uh, maybe, or that were being played on the radio and things like that. But, you know, to me, I was just kind of, um, I had a pretty newly formed theology that I was testing out, but I was testing it out very confidently um, with language. And then I, and I was also writing songs about being, about girls, you know, about like being on the road and not having a girlfriend. So it's like, those were my two, those were the two big topics. God and women were the two big topics for me uh, always. And, um, and not necessarily in that order. And so um, I don't feel like it was really until I got into my solo career that, that I, that I finally felt 
kind of fully liberated to write songs that did wind up, I think, being more objectively provocative, although unintentionally so. Like I, as you said, I was kind of just working out, I was just following coordinates. I didn't feel like I was intentionally doing anything. um, um, You know, and, and it was honestly those songs that sparked my solo career. I mean, I, you know, I spent 10 years in Cademan's. I never had, um, an idea that I wanted to be a solo artist. I really liked being in a band. I, and we were doing really well. And I, and, um, and so to leave a good job, you know, um, it was really more about, I followed the, the songs because there was a point at which, um, and it has its own story that I've told uh, a handful of times if anyone's interested, but, um, around the writing of the song wedding dress and, um, which was, um, kind of a pivotal song. And it was, it was, uh, um, I I thought at the time that I was writing a Cadman's Call song, you know, I, I, uh, there was a a specific situation um, that that song came from. And, um, and, but once it was written and I showed it to the band, they, they really liked it, but they immediately, it it felt like a bit of a pivot uh, in terms of my being willing to go a little further and take a little more risk in terms of the language I was using to really emphasize, to draw attention and emphasize a point. Um, and they liked it, but I remember them being immediately resistant to me playing it at a Cadman's Call show. And I don't think I ever did, um, which was really weird because our shows got to the point um, by the late nineties, early two thousands, where um, there'd be a point in the show where the band would leave and I would just play a set for about, three or four songs. Uh, um, and it wasn't like a highlight me part of the show. It was just to knock out some of my songs. Cause we played the hits, which were all Aaron songs. Usually like we'd front load the set with hits. And then at some point the band would leave and I would just play a, a solo acoustic kind of set, but it didn't, again, it didn't feel like a solo Derek set. It felt like I'm just in the band. And so I'm going to play some of the band songs by myself and then the band comes back. And, um, and, and I, I remember it feeling unusual not to include a song like Wedding Dress because it felt important to me, but the band wasn't really comfortable with me playing it. And and I think they were right to protect what we had built for those 10 years because um, they weren't necessarily to use, you know, again, a little coded language. They weren't necessarily called to be pro- provocative and maybe push quite that that hard and that far in, in the songs. They had, a you know, like the the band was a a stable business at that point. There were a lot of people whose livings were depending on it. And, um, and that was a big, that would have been a big chance to take. And I don't think that's really where they were looking to go. And that made sense. They were very supportive of me, but very clear that, um, the band might not be the, you know, the, the avenue for some of the new material that I was writing. And, and so then it just kind of became, again, following coordinates, it just kind of became obvious that, Oh, maybe I need to, make some music on my own then. And then, and then the dominoes just, just tipped over. I mean, it it was not, um, you know, we, we, it was, it was at no point adversarial or, or, uh, confrontational. I mean, we, we remained friends and very supportive of each other and they were like, you know, we're cheering you on, you know, you know, and so I went and signed my own solo record deal and, and started working on, what then became my first solo record, which was She Must and Shall Go Free. And that song, Wedding Dress, was on it, along with a lot of others. And and so that was the point where I felt, at that point, like I literally had n- nothing to protect because I was nobody. 
you know, like the band, there was a lot to protect and a lot to consider. And there was a, a context everything had to fit into there. But once I was on my own, I could do anything. And I think that was a, a pivot point for me as a songwriter too, because it, it uh, kind of liberated me to, to consider what topics had I maybe even unintentionally or subconsciously been avoiding during my years in Cademans because I just knew that they would be, that they would uh, be too provocative in that context. And, and so it was great. And it really gave me, you know, even a wider road on which to travel. And I had a very supportive record label who, um, you know, really liked the new stuff I was, I was writing and, and wanted to support that. And uh, so it was, you know, that whole thing felt very natural to me, you know, as you continued through albums and songwriting, you're traveling, you're learning, struggling and processing. When did faith and Christianity begin to unravel for you? Honestly, it's hard to say because I, I'm, I can only kind of try and judge it in hindsight now because there was a long time, I guess I didn't really know that's what was happening. Um, I had a, I have a very extreme personality. I do nothing in moderation. And so when I'm, when I've got all my chips on a table, I mean, I'm all in. And so I was extremely loyal to, um, and very committed to the idea of Christianity and the idea of Christianity making sense, um, and it working and it, and it harmonizing with, um, what I was observing in the world and, uh, hard as that is to do sometimes. And I, I was really committed to that idea to the point where I just really, intellectually gave it everything I had. Um, and, uh, and I, I realize now that I, that I, like many people, you know, was operating from a, a very extreme conclusion bias. You know, I was really working hard to make it all make sense. Um, I was working from a conclusion and, and fighting hard to justify it as opposed to starting with a hypothesis and testing it to see if it rings true in real time, which is more how I try to do it now. And I think is a healthier way to do anything. Um, but, but at the time, I think it kind of manifested itself in a, because of my fierce loyalty to the ideas of Christianity, I think it just gave me a, I kind of very fearlessly and, in a, in a, and, and what looks to me now in a very cavalier way, I really went after the church a lot. Um, and I didn't really intentionally go after the church. I was really going after myself. I was, I was always in my own crosshairs. Um, but what I was writing about was really mostly, um, you know, the inconsistencies and the contradictions that I was seeing in myself and my own practice of Christianity and in my friends and my community. And then by extension, it would certainly scale and amplify up to the point where it would apply to the church as an idea. And I think a lot of people read it only as that and saw me as kind of self-righteously judging it, which I certainly wasn't, um, nor could I, um, considering um, how poorly I was practicing it in many cases. And I tried to document that as well as I could. But um, so the point I'm making is that along the way, I was certainly critiquing it and criticize. I was critiquing and criticizing myself um, and by extension, you know, the Christianity that I was practicing, at least the version that I was believing and practicing. And, and later I figured out that that was really, that was me testing the hypothesis. You know, I mean, I didn't hold it that way at the time, but, um, 
looking back, I remember there, I remember people even I would ever so often I would catch someone responding to something I had made or said and saying later they said, well, it's just so obvious that he was gonna, he was eventually going to stop believing and he was going to wind up like, I don't know what, who I was getting um, lumped in with, but apparently people who, you know, are critical and then eventually leave or something, the church. And it didn't feel that way at all to me. It, it all felt like it was an expression of care. It all felt like it was because I loved and cared about the church, the institution of the church, the community of the church, the ideas inside the church. I cared about it so much that, you know, cause critique is only ever rooted in love. Um, if you don't care about something, you won't bother to critique it. You'll be apathetic towards it, which is really, you know, the, the, uh, that's the really awful response, but you know, critique is usually with a, with a vision for something's good and, and glory. And, and I, that's what I was really fighting for and, and, and questioning and frustrated around is that I know that we can do better. And I know that we, you know, so, um, but looking back on it, 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 it does feel like that unraveling that you're talking about. I just didn't realize that's what I was doing. Um, and then it wasn't until later about five or six years ago that, that it got a, a very fine point on it because, you know, I, um, you know, went through some more kind of surprising and traumatic experiences that, that, uh, that, and like they often do for a lot of people will cause you to evaluate the thing that you are going to for comfort. And so it's like all the rest of this has been dress rehearsal. All these weeks we've been going to this church service. And now that the real, you know, now that the shit's hit the fan and, and it's really something hard and traumatic and it's, it's not a drill anymore. Will the thing that I've been investing my time into um, and that I've been dress rehearsing, will it, can it support my weight and can it support my grief and it, can it support me? And that's usually the point where you either find out or you start to, you start to question it. And, uh, and so I, you know, and I, and, and it, it doesn't always take, you know, trauma to cause, um, a, an audit of spiritual ideas or a deconstruction. Um, but it, it, it certainly is one of the main opportunities that I feel like I've seen my friends, you know, that's, that's usually when it can happen. But I also have a lot of friends who've never gone anything, especially sudden or traumatic, who just, slowly over time, find the idea is not persuasive anymore. And, um, and that's two ways to go. But anyway, so it's maybe like other things in my career, it's like slow and then fast, but that's kind of how it felt to me. What did you think about what would happen to your career? Seeing as up until that point, it was mostly directed and fueled by church people. Yep. It absolutely was. And yeah, I got to tell you, I, I had no idea what it would do. And I actually just, it was, it was the furthest thing from my mind because at that time I was, as I said, kind of really going through very hard things and very personally traumatic things. And you just don't have the additional bandwidth. It's just, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like you go all the way to the bottom for a minute and you're just trying to survive and you're just trying to kind of emotionally get through it. And and you don't really have the luxury of considering how it's going to, um, the effects it's going to have on, on career and things like that. So I just didn't think about it. I just had no, um, and, you know, and luckily I'm a guy who is interested in a handful of things. And, um, while I'm not good at very much, hardly anything, actually, the, the few things I'm good at, I'm really good at. And I, 
And so I've made a point over the years to always try to focus my energy on, on staying busy at, at, at just those few things. Music is one. Um, but I also love creative problem solving. I love business. And, you know, so I had a, a music platform called noise trade that I had started a few years before. And that at the time I was kind of going through a lot of this when it would have really impacted my career. I had, I was kind of right at that same time was stepping away from music for a minute to run the business. And, um, and so I spent a few years running that company and, um, luckily had that to, as a, as kind of a shelter, you know, personally, so that I wasn't having to be, because music is such a, uh, it's such a public and kind of exposed job. And so depending on how you do it, um, it's, it can be a, a, a hard, vulnerable place to have to, you know, um, air out and process through some of those things while you're going through them. And so I'm really grateful that I didn't have to, I'm grateful that I, I had other things in my work life that I could kind of lean my weight onto and give music a break. And also, um, and so to answer your question, I, I, I didn't have any idea and I didn't really think about it and it didn't really matter. And I'm grateful that it didn't have to. Um, but the other thing to consider is that, you know, I've always said that the job of an artist is to look at the world and describe it, to look at the world and tell us what you see is kind of the artist's job description. And, and so, and, and I've always kind of considered religion or spirituality to be, some people call that a worldview. Um, you know, it's the, it's the grid through which you look at the world. Um, your opinions on spirituality or your um, the, the particular religious beliefs that you hold is essentially the lenses or the grid through which you look at and interpret reality to help you make sense of what you're seeing. That's what it is. And everybody has it. Even if you think there's it's totally random and there's no meaning in the universe and everything's happening by chance, that's still a grid through which you are choosing to look at it because it's helping it to make sense to you and that and so everybody has this and so if you put those two things together though and you think okay here I am trying to look at the world and describe it but at a moment when the grid through which I've looked at it for my entire life or at least my entire adult life you know for the last 30 years is has been dismantled and is in pieces and is gone and suddenly I it's I'm not I have no grid through which I'm looking I'm uh it, it was really hard. It caused some writer's block. I mean, I didn't know how to bridge the gap until there was something in its place. Um, and so you, it, it took some time for me to even figure out how to describe the world as I was seeing it because I did not have any fixed grid through which I was looking. And um, so that took time. And um, so it was a few years between records at that point. And then eventually Fingers Crossed did come out and it was an album, as I've described it, of uh, it was like a tale of two divorces because it was, you know, about a horizontal and vertical divorce that I'd gone through during the, that few years period, and um, it was just the only thing I knew how to say and the only the only art that I knew how to make, um, and it was kind of a first try at looking through a different grid than I had ever looked through before, and um, but it, but looking back on it now, that for those reasons, it makes sense that it that I had to take a break. Now, what was the response of your believer friends upon hearing that your, 
and I say this in air quotes, not in the club anymore? Um, I, you know, I, I don't really know. I mean, the, the circumstances are strange in that, you know, because I was, there was a lot of upheaval at that time for me uh, and a lot of big changes, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, I, I probably had a, you know, 97% friend turnover during those, those two or three years as well. And, um, and had a whole new community, honestly, at the end of it, um, a whole new group of friends that, I, that most of whom I did not know a few years before. And, uh, and, um, you know, almost everything about my life changed. And so I didn't really have the benefit of having a lot of my Christian friends, you know, from my previous season of life stick around to even tell me what their response was. Most of those people, I still kind of don't really know how they feel <laughs> about, uh, the new record or the, or kind of me in general. I'm, I don't really know. Um, I know m how my new friends feel and my community that I have now and people who I met in the midst of trauma. And, and, you know, when you, when, when you meet somebody under normal circumstances, and you become friends, usually around things you have in common. And it's, you know, and then eventually maybe somebody does something unexpected that just points the other. And then, and that's maybe when friends leave. Um, but when you meet friends in the midst of hard things, and maybe among the first things about you that they find out are the worst things or the, the, the most com complex things, those are people, those are circumstances, um, you know, that, uh, that that's, you know, roots going into soil that, you know, people don't leave um, because all the hard stuff is behind you at the beginning. Um, and so there's no surprises from there. And, uh, and so my community now has been extremely supportive. And, uh, um, but at the time, you know, I think it's probably just a lot of concern and a lot of prayer and fasting. I don't really know, you know, it's, and, and, but I want to be clear that I, I, I came to, realize and see those responses as, as expressions of care. And so anytime, even still, when somebody like, for instance, on social media or something will, will say to me either privately or publicly that they are praying for me or that they, even if they say it in a way that's not especially loving in its presentation, um, you know, like they think I'm, I'm a fool and they hope I come back to my senses and come back to the Lord or whatever it is. I really do receive all of that as expressions of care. And so I, I, because I do know what people mean and I do um, appreciate the motivation for saying something like that. I know that it's because they care um, or at least that's the, the benefit of the doubt that I would give, but, and still do. Um, so, yeah. So I guess to answer your question, mostly what I received was, um, nothing. I'm, you know, pe people kind of weren't really around. So, um, so I'm not, yeah, so I don't really know. <laughs> now, Derek, what have you found outside the church and outside organized religion that you never found within it? Well, so much, you know, and, and, and let me, but let me start by saying that I think that any answer I would give to that question I could imagine a lot of my Christian friends or Christians anywhere who might be hearing this, I can hear them saying, well, you know, well, that's fine, but I have, I have found that in my community and I've found that in my church community and I found that in my religious or spiritual community. And, and they 
could be right about that. I don't think that any of the things that I found were necessarily um, unique to, you know, non-religious communities or something. I, I don't know. Um, so much as they just were not things that I had ever experienced. And so I, what I don't want to say is that I found, you know, like that somehow the non-religious community has the market cornered on certain things or experiences um, that people cannot find inside of great churches. Cause I, I do, I have seen that. Um, but the most of what I found, honestly, that was the most refreshing to me was um, people who, if they cared and if they were being kind or loving, they were doing so without um, a reason, like without a motivation necessarily, without an agenda or, um, I feel like a lot of my Christian friends or Christians who I'd experienced either online or in person had, you know, um, uh, had been very purpose driven, let's say. Um, so there was a purpose driving if they were being kind or if they were being welcoming or, or if they were being, you just always felt like it was maybe even a little overdone to the point where you were like, yeah, wh why are you being so nice and what do you want from me like what's what 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 and i never really got that vibe from the people i was meeting uh who who were outside the church and who were, did not identify that way um i was struck really by their unmotivated kindness they were being kind just because they're kind people or because why wouldn't you be and there was never it never kind of came around to a conversation about anything and it never came around to like, now that I've earned the ride, I want to talk to you about something because I'm concerned for your soul. It was like, they were just, it was just so refreshing to know there was never another shoe dropping that it was like, Oh no, these, these, these are just normal people who don't have any eternal agenda for me. They're just, we're just hanging out. I mean, we're just like, this is just how life is. Um, that was really nice and it was really refreshing and I kind of forgotten what that was like. And, um, and, uh, and then beyond that, I was really struck by, um, just how many people, um, there were, um, kind of organically congregating outside the church. If you think about it, it's almost an, an, an inarguable point that the church has turned out more people than it currently has in it at any time because like so there's a fixed amount of people who would consider themselves part of the church visible or invisible um the evangelical christian church let's say um you know there, there there are a fixed amount of believers in that you know people who are but there are countless amounts of people who have come through it and um have gone through that you know for the in the same way that there are like you know, you know, the, uh, the University of Tennessee, you know, here in, here in, uh, or in Knoxville, you know, the big, big university, there are a certain amount of students at that school, but there are a lot of students who have gone through and graduated and come through. And I feel, I, I was surprised and struck by just how, I mean, you always know that there are people who have stories and people who have some experience with religion or church and everybody kind of does. And if you're in a bar and you're, it comes up, everyone's going to have um, a story to contribute to that conversation, but I was really surprised how many people were kind of sloppily recongregating in bars and just everywhere 
um, who had not just some experience with spirituality, but were actively processing post-Christian feelings and had gone through a deconversion process and had, had, you know, were no longer in the church, whether it was a very active or a more passive kind of experience they'd had. So many people who had very, um, you know, specific experiences and, and thoughts and, and just really nowhere to take it, nowhere to, nowhere to congregate, nowhere to, no community with whom to process it, you know, cause the church is really good at gathering and congregating and, and, but then once you're out of it, it's like, you feel like you're completely alone and isolated. And the only person who's ever had to go through the withdrawal of getting religion out of your system and, and it's, and you feel like you're doing it completely by yourself in isolation. And a lot of people do. What you don't realize is you are brushing past a cloud of witnesses everywhere, every day in culture, at work, on the street, everywhere you go of people who are processing those same feelings, but have no way to identify themselves to each other. The way that the church makes it so easy to identify yourself to others um, with whom you can do life in community. And so once I kind of realized that we all started talking to each other, I just realized what a huge community of people that there are um, who are all going through it and how comforting that was to me to realize that I wasn't the only one. And that really was part of why we started our podcast because there were so many people who we realized felt so isolated and alone. And we also realized that they weren't. And so we really wanted them to either have a a safe place to anonymously tell their story and air it out and, um, but also for people to hear their stories being told out of other people's mouths um, or resonant or similar stories in order to realize that they were not alone. Um, it's what great songs do for people. They provide soundtrack for emotional you know, uh, experiences for which you have no words and somebody else articulates it. And it's not only comforting to hear the words you've been looking for, but also to realize someone else has felt or feels the way that I do. And that makes me feel comforted and less alone. And that's the great you know, balm that art can provide. And, and, um, in a similar way, we hoped that our podcast would do that, that it would be like hearing a song and and hearing language or something articulated that you've felt deeply, but never had the words or the courage to say before. And you hear someone else say it and suddenly you realize you're not alone. And that was the great power of it. And, um, you know, so I think that's really what led to all the rest of what happened, you know? And Derek, I've been loving our conversation, but as we bring our time to a close, you know, being within the machine of CCM, being out of it, having Christianity as an identifier, and now not, what, what's something that you would say to the church to kind of help us all move in a more positive direction from your position and from your perspective? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's the right question. And, and it's definitely a question that I, I try to answer with some humility because um obviously all I have is my experience to speak from and I also feel as though I have a different um posture towards it now as I as a, as someone who doesn't identify as part of that community it's a harder thing I never had any problem critiquing or criticizing it when I was part of it um I didn't I never had any problem turning tables over in my own living room but um but it's it's a it's a more sensitive thing to do as someone who, who doesn't identify that way anymore. But my invitation maybe to my Christian friends, and I've kind of said this sort of thing before, but um, is to 
um, to, to, I, I think maybe where I would start is, um, and some of this might get a little theologically specific and for that, I apologize, but I can only answer, you know, I can only look at the world and, and tell you what I see. And, um, I would say to trust for Christians, I would say to trust, um, their own, to play by their own rules and to trust the things they believe to the extent that they might really listen and love people who disagree and not impress the weight of all eternity on every conversation to the extent that they wind up having to just, I think that there, there is, there, there is a very, what starts as care finishes as almost pressure and, and, and almost, you know, like a, um, bullying, you know, like a, a, or shaming even, um, a frustration that turns to, to a, a public shame and embarrassment campaign to try to get people to believe again. It, if Christians truly believed as I did, and as I, I think a lot of Christians do, I think it, it's at least part of classical orthodoxy in the church to say that, you know, salvation is a, is a mysterious thing. It's a spiritual, it's a spiritual transaction that happens. You know, when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit removing a heart of stone or replacing it with a heart of flesh, when you hear about Jesus calling Lazarus from the dead out to new life and the image of baptism of being dead in sins and coming alive again. And, and, you know, and, you know, it's, it's a mysterious, um, process. It's a mysterious idea, the idea of salvation. And, and, um, and, you know, the, the Bible says that it's by grace through faith. And, you know, these are things that are not of ourselves and that no one can boast. It's the gifts of God. It's applied by the Holy spirit. It's accomplished by Jesus and all these things. Um, and therefore, you know, it's, it's a, it's, you know, at least in my tradition, we would say that it's the work of the spirit from beginning to end salvation is if it's real. Um, and if it's real to my Christian friends, trust that the spirit will do it, let him do his job. And then you get busy doing the job of listening and loving, um, and not with an agenda and not with, um, a deep sense of disappointment if someone doesn't come around by the end of your conversation and, and just, it would speak more to the veracity of the love of your God for you to be unflinchingly um, and, and, and lovingly, loving without uh, agenda um, and without expectation than what I mostly see, which is Christians both privately and publicly shaming, uh, you know, trying to logically persuade or trick or corner um, non-believers back into belief. And I think that just does so much more harm than good. And so, you know, be a good advertisement for God's love. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that would be the most persuasive witness that you could, that you could bear. That would be maybe what I would say. That's a great word, man. Thank you. And uh, and thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people connect with you online and your music and tell us what you have going on? Um, DerekWebb.com, D-E-R-E-K-W-E-B-B. -B. That's pretty much where you're going to find everything. Um, 
and uh, so yeah, if people went there, I mean, I'm, I've um, I've got a new record coming out early next year. I've, I'm on the road constantly, and um, so I'll uh, I'm I'm always traveling, always touring, putting out music and things like that. So if you know, and anywhere on social media, um, very predictably, I'm just you know at Derek Webb everywhere. So that would be great. That's awesome, man. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, Derek, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.